plot twists. We're obsessed with them. In film, life and love, they turn up everywhere. It's that moment in a story where it takes you in an unexpected direction. I'm Tom, comedy and impressions lover. And I'm Fran, super fan of reality TV and rom-coms. And we're from now. And throughout this series, we're going to be interviewing TV and film stars, asking them all about their favourite plot twists, both on and off screen. So expect the unexpected, and hopefully some behind-the-scenes gems that you've never heard before. Contain spoilers. Obviously. Hey, everybody. I'm Fran. Welcome back. Oh, thank you. I've missed you. We've missed you. I also <laughs> feel like I really didn't take an opportune week this week with my sick leave. You really did Because <laughs> your guest this week is an epic one. It's Martin Sheen. And oh. he is such an amazing guy. Like, he's lived through and been part of so many eras of TV, show business, theatre. I mean, he starred opposite Marlon Brando. He's been directed by Scorsese and Richard Attenborough. How on earth did you feel going into this interview? Beyond excited. I'm not sure, actually. We've had some amazing guests on this podcast, but I'm not sure I've been as excited to speak to somebody as with Martin Sheen. I bet. Just extraordinary. If you think about his career, Badlands, West Wing, arguably one of the best series ever. There's so many brilliant cameos. Think of like, I mean, we love Catch Me If You Can. That's a great film. Love Catch Me If You Can. And then there's the groundbreaking a recent series of his, Grace and Frankie with Jane Fonda. This oh, amazing. He was also recently in the Academy Award winning Judas and the Black Messiah, which is coming to now on the 1st of October. What a film. And what a role he plays in that. He's J. Edgar Hoover, who is former head of the FBI and a pretty controversial figure. Very renowned, very powerful. And talking of powerful films, Apocalypse Now, arguably his biggest film. And obviously that famous opening scene where he's in the hotel room, he's this former soldier who's been asked to go back into combat. He's uh, mm. grappling with his emotions. And let's just say Martin takes method acting to a whole new level. So we had to ask about that. Uh, but he's not just an actor. He's really not. As a social activist since the 1980s, he has done so much to push causes that are close to his heart and, and really put himself on the front line. There's some extraordinary stories. Powerful uh, stories. Very powerful stories. So that's where we've got to go as well. Oh, what a week. What a guest. I'm so excited for this one. Here it is. It's Martin Sheen on Plot Twist. Well, let's kick this off. Martin Sheen, it is a pleasure, a privilege to have you on Plot Twist. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. I'm delighted. Now, uh, I was just thinking, you've over 60 years in the business and still setting new boundaries, new feats. Grace and Frankie, correct me if I'm wrong, this will be the longest running Netflix original series once completed next year. I mean, that's extraordinary. <laughs> well, you wouldn't find anyone more surprised than I. <laughs> <laughs> really, uh, what the, the premise of the series attracted me, but I thought, hmm, I don't know if it's such a hot idea to uh, leave uh, Jane Fonda for Sam Waterston. I mean, I adore the two of them, but uh, <laughs> I didn't know, none of us did, frankly, if, if the uh, premise would work. But uh, 
in the capable hands of Marta Kaufman, who wrote Friends, of course. She knew what she was doing, and uh, Netflix trusted all of us. And here we are. We actually started filming our final season, which would be the seventh season last year, and we were shut down by COVID. And we only got back to finishing the series uh, this past June. Yes. And uh, so we have 12 more in the making, which will come out, I believe, by next spring. So Very that, that will actually be season eight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, congratulations on the milestone. Anyway, it's, it's, uh, it's fabulous. Thank you. I'm delighted. Now, I'd like to start these podcasts with either a bit of trivia or find some common ground. I'm kind of giving away my secrets here. But I, I thought a, a good place or a good person to start would be Frank Sinatra. Oh, uh, my. <laughs> <laughs> because listeners of the podcast may know that one of my comedy heroes is Don Rickles who, of course, was very good friends with Sinatra. Who I he used to open for him, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. one of your idols. Mm-hmm. You had the chance to meet Sinatra, but you, I you turned did, it down? Yeah. I did, yeah. Well, you know, uh, <laughs> there's an <laughs> old phrase, you should never meet your idols, and there's some truth to that. Uh, uh, yeah, I adored him, and I knew his former wife very well. Uh, we had done a couple of shows together and re- remained friends, and... She told me a lot about him that made me admire him more and more uh, as a philanthropist, as a human being, as a compassionate man, besides his enormous talent. But uh, it went like this. I was doing an interview with a friend of his. I didn't know that they were friendly. And she asked me, who were my heroes? And I said, well, Reverend King and Bobby Kennedy. And she, she said, well, in the in show business, what? And I said, without hesitation, I said, Frank Sinatra. Mm. And she said, really, why? And uh, I said, because of all the work he does personally to help people. And, he, and his one request is that they don't tell anybody that he's done this for them. And that really impressed me because I knew of a, several people personally, that he had helped, and they remained quiet about it. Uh, That was his MO. And a couple of weeks later, I got a call from Sinatra's secretary who said that uh, he would like me to attend his opening at the Sands in two weeks' time. And my heart began to pound, (laughs) and I began to sweat, and I began to stutter. And I said, oh, oh, my, I'd love to do that. I said, but... um, you know, I'm I'm starting a job in Europe. Uh, I lied. Uh, 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 in a few weeks' time, I'm afraid I won't be available. I'm so disappointed. And she said, "Well, we are too. But should the occasion arise, uh, please accept an open invitation to come and and uh, be Mr. Sinatra's guest." And uh, I said I would, uh, and lied again. And uh, I never never met him. I, I just did not have the courage to stand in that uh, presence. And I've done that with a couple of people that I'm not proud of. I'm just saying that I, there's, there's a part of me that when I'm confronted with or have an opportunity to meet someone that I admire greatly, I'm very, very shy about it. And I get very uh, insecure because I'm, I'm, one, I'm afraid I'll make a fool of myself and spoil their image of me. Or two, I'll make a fool of them and spoil their image of me. So <laughs> there you have it. Yeah. Well, he kind of had a presence, didn't he? A bit like, because uh, we're obsessed with celebrity and this whole thing of fame. But there are yeah. certain individuals that get to another sort of stratosphere. You think of yeah. Elvis, you think of Muhammad Ali. 
and Sinatra would be in that that category. Very much uh, so. Yeah. Who who yeah. else who else would have you if you turned down for the same sort of reason? Oh my. Of <laughs> <laughs> uh, two of my heroes, I was in their presence uh, in 1965. I was on Broadway doing a show when the horrible uh, tragedy of Selma, Alabama occurred. And uh, all of us in this show were outraged and we wanted to do something. And so we organized a benefit uh, for everybody on Broadway to gather for what we called Broadway Answers Selma. And uh, we had a, uh, a date picked out in a the theater and it would be a dark night on Broadway so that all of the uh, people on Broadway and, and in that time it included Barbara Streisand and Marie Chevalier and um, Alan Arkin and uh, a whole hosts of uh, uh, mega stars. And we, we organized this and we met and had this enormous benefit. It was on a Sunday afternoon and Sammy Davis was the host. And uh, halfway through the rehearsal, he asked me if I would uh, mind um, just remaining backstage uh, and helping some of the old people find their place in the dark uh, during the show. He was worried about the old people stumbling around because we didn't have a whole lot of time to organize this thing, okay? Mm. And um, I, I said, yeah, fine. And so I was uh, backstage about through the middle of the first act and Sammy Davis was on stage and he made an announcement that was stunning. No one knew this was coming. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Martin Luther King Jr. Oh, wow. And he stood up in a box, which was very close to the theater stage and uh, took a bow and he tried to sit down and the audience uh, screamed and hollered and applauded it. And he, he tried to sit down again and he waved them to begin. They wouldn't. And, and a third time he just be pleaded with them, please sit down. And okay. And they did. Uh, and, and then uh, the show was quite long and everybody was so excited because now we were performing for the man of the hour, one of the heroes of the 20th century for uh, all of us. And um, the second act started and, uh, Sammy Davis was on stage and I was backstage. And in fact, I had just found a seat for Marie Chevalier. Uh, and he was sitting there waiting and I was waiting beside him. And Sammy was on stage and uh, the light from the stage was shining backstage. And about 15 feet from me, I looked over and I looked again and Reverend King was standing there alone. And he was just looking out onto the stage and I knew what was happening. He was leaving and he didn't want to make a fuss, but he came back to say goodbye to Sammy. And uh, as I watched him, I was stunned how small he was because it's Martin Luther King Jr. He's eight feet tall. And, and, and <laughs> yes. you, you, <laughs> you just can't imagine being in his presence. Uh, and I looked at him and, I, and my... My thought was, please go get the blessing, Martin. This is some opportunity for me. And I said, no, no. Uh, my other angel was saying, don't bother him. He's, he's been up all night and he's very tired and he has to go now and so forth. And I said, yeah, but you've got to get the blessing. You may never get this opportunity. Get the blessing for heaven's sake. No, no, leave the man alone for God's sakes. That conflict within me went on for maybe 
a minute and a half. Oh, it seemed like 10 minutes. And then Sammy Davis ended his song and he came back and he went directly to Reverend King and they hugged each other and Sammy walked him to the uh, stage door exit. And I never met Martin Luther King. I didn't have that, that chutzpah or that courage it takes to be vulnerable in the presence of someone that you adore, a hero. So um, that's my story. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. I feel in life you can get those sort of flash images, can't you, of a certain area, mm -hmm. a certain place that you were. That must be pretty pretty high up there for you. That was the the most disappointing decision I think I ever made in that regard. Yeah. I think about it every time I see footage of him. And remember it was uh it was less than three years later that he was yes, murdered. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I guess as as far as uh, heroes go, Reverend King and Frank Sinatra are pretty good, pretty good choices. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think I better quit while I'm ahead or behind. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think they're pretty good. They're pretty good. Yeah, the uh, you know, of course, the dear former wife of Frank Sinatra that I'm referring to that I hold very close in my heart is Mia Farrow, of course. Yeah. Before we talk about or go on to our first plot twist question, Martin, um, just doing a bit of research around your family, but in particular your parents, their, their story and how they meet, obviously meet in, in, in New York and, and their journey to New York is extraordinary. It feels in a way that that could be a movie in itself. Yeah, they, but, you know, we, uh, we thought of their story as the typical uh, immigrant story of America in the 20th century. Actually, in the 19th century, the United States uh, opened its doors wider to immigrant populations around the world, and they held those gates open longer than any other nation on earth. And as a result, we had the foundation for the strongest uh, democracy in the world, and it's still proven true. We're still a nation of immigrants, and my parents, of course, were both a part of it. My father came from a little village near Vigo in northern Spain. He was a Gallego. And um, he came to the United States at age 16 uh, with two brothers. And they were refused entry at Port of New York because there was a quota on Spaniards, not Hispanics, but Spaniards, <laughs> people from Spain because of the uh, newly fought Spanish-American War. And so the three of them decided... Uh, to take the next boat to uh, Havana. And they did. And uh, my father worked in the sugarcane field for about three years in uh, Havana. And he came into the United States through Miami and worked his way up to Philadelphia, where he became a naturalized citizen. And they heard about, they were hiring at this factory in Dayton, Ohio, called the National Cash Register Company. And he went up there and he got hired. Uh, my father spoke two languages when he arrived in the United States, uh, uh, Spanish and uh, uh, Portuguese. He learned Italian while he was uh, working at the National Cash Register Company because there were more Italian immigrants there than, <laughs> yeah. than any, any other population at the time. And then uh, he met my mother, who had come from Ireland and arrived in the United States uh, shortly after her 18th birthday uh, in 1921. And she decided to stay in the United States with a cousin 
because first of all, she was sent to the United States uh, for her own protection because of the newly uh, uh, War of independence. Uh, and... Well, no, it was the it was that her family was involved in the rising, you know, the fight for independence. But now it was a civil war, and she didn't quite know what her place would be if she returned to Ireland. And so she decided to become an American citizen. And she met my father in citizenship school in Dayton, Ohio, and they were married in 1927. Uh, she had 12 pregnancies, 10 survived, nine boys and one girl, and I am the seventh son, the seventh surviving son, because the boy had uh, died at uh, childbirth uh, many years quite earlier. A, yeah, quite a so, remarkable story. Yeah, yeah, this guy's name was Francisco. Estevez, and my mother's name was Mary Ann Phelan, and uh, they still live right here in my heart. Yeah, that's wonderful. What was what was life like for you growing up? Did you grow up in New York, or were you in Dayton? No, I grew up in Dayton. I was born in 1940, and you know Ohio was a conservative state. It's not nearly as conservative as it is now, but uh, there was um, a great sense of community. I. I uh, it was a very rural state at the time. It wasn't as industrialized as it is now. And uh, I grew up in a very middle-class neighborhood called South Park, which has now uh, become an, uh, a historic uh, area. It's called uh, the Oregon District. And unfortunately, it's where one of these horrible mass shootings uh, took place just two years ago this past August. And I was raised Catholic. We went to a Catholic grade school, Holy Trinity, which was just a block from the, this horrible uh, murder site, mass murder site. And I went to Chaminade High School, which was a Catholic high school for boys at the time. And, uh, you know, I was a caddy at a local golf club from the time I was nine years old until I actually well, I left home at age 18. So it was the longest job I ever had. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> Um, and, uh, I, I was uh, a caddy there and I tried to organize a, uh, caddy union in the summer of 1954. And the union lasted 73 hours. I lasted 24 hours before they fired me. And uh, it was the first time after all those years working at that private club that I heard the term private property. I was on private property and I had to, uh, <laughs> disperse, but it was a, a life lesson. And I never forgot it. I'm grateful to most of the members of that very exclusive private club because they taught me what not to be. And uh, that's a, that's a, <laughs> a very uh, invaluable lesson. Um, at any rate, I went to New York uh, in January of 1959 and started knocking on doors and uh, trying to seek my way as an actor. And that and, was the year that you changed your name. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, uh, when I came to New York, there was a great deal of prejudice for the Hispanic community, specifically the Puerto Rican community. So I was thought to be a member of that community, which, which I was very proud to be associated with. But unfortunately, it didn't help my career because, <laughs> well, first of all, people in the business were hard pressed to pronounce my name. My my real name is Ramon Estevez. It still is. I've never officially changed it. I started using Martin Sheen because I thought it would be easier 
to get started in the theater or start my acting career with that name, everybody said, you look so Irish. And, and so I thought, well, maybe an Irish name would do it. Uh, so I did it. And I didn't know if it would stick. So I thought, uh, you know, if uh, this doesn't work out, uh, I'll go back to my, my first name. Because I had, I, I, the first check I got for acting from Martin Sheen, I couldn't cash because I didn't have any uh, identification. So I wrote to the IRS in Washington and said, I have this problem. I have a check made out to this fictitious person who I am purporting to be, and I don't have a social security number under that name. So they sent me a new card with the same number. So I still have a social security card with the name Ramon Estevez and one with the name Martin Sheen. So if this acting gig doesn't work out, I can always go back to what I was doing as Ramon Estevez because yeah. I never changed my name. And it's always confusing because when I get stopped for a traffic violation or if I'm arrested, <laughs> I, I have to use that identification. Uh, Must confuse them a bit. <laughs> as a, it was very confusing. Yeah, yeah. Does anyone, um, those closest to you, do they refer to you as Martin or Ramon? They do. It's only if somebody has a, a bone to pick with me that they get <laughs> very personal with Ramon. My sister Carmen, who I adore, who lives in Madrid, and it's possible, I suppose, that she could listen into this podcast. So I want to let her know there's no hard feelings, <laughs> Carmen. This dear woman still calls me Ramon, darling. And I know it's coming. <laughs> I was just thinking with the two names in the 60s, that could have been a, a prequel to Catch Me If You Can with uh, Frank Abernell Jr. You know, different... <laughs> it's true. You can, yeah. see, you can see how it happened. You can see mm -hmm. how it happened. It's a true story. Um, yeah. It's a great Very volunteer. often when I do an ad for a politics or a product or someone special, I always start with... Uh, Hola, me llamo Ramon Estevez, a.k.a. Martin Sheen. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, let's talk about your first plot twist. So plot twists, they can happen in TV or film, and they can be an unexpected moment, but a moment that changes one's narrative, one's story. What would represent the biggest plot twist for you? I'd have to go... Well, I guess I should start with a very interesting plot twist. Um, I, my first venture into the professional theater, now the first time I got paid for acting, <laughs> was uh, for performing in a two-character play called Purgatory by William Butler Yeats, the famous Irish poet and playwright. And uh, I was working at the Living Theater, and I was a prop master and a curtain puller and an understudy at the time. And uh, they asked me to do this play. And the play takes place in a secluded portion of a public park. And so uh, my friend and I went to Central Park to uh, practice, to get a, 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 a sense of the reality, the setting of the play. <laughs> and, while, and while I was attacking him, in the play, uh, you know, enacting this attack, some bystanders uh, <laughs> interrupted and said, Chair, what's going on here? Stop it. We'll call the police. And so I said, no, 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 we're acting. Oh, of course you're acting. And you're acting <laughs> like a, a murderer. You ought to be and this and, and it went on and on. And I had to calm them. But it confirmed 
my suspicion that maybe I had a talent for this, uh, oh, wow. this business. <laughs> so it was the first confirmation that I had a possibility of making a living, but I ought not do it in a public setting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Leonard Hicks was the name of that actor. And I adored him. Uh, assuming this would have been before the subject was roses. Oh, yeah, that long before. Very... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That so, seemed like, in, in, I suppose, commercially, that was, uh, and obviously Apocalypse Now was the sort of the big worldwide showcase, if you will. But that seemed like the subject was roses was the first sort of big, sort of obviously did that as a play, won Tony Awards, then goes on to the movie with Patricia Neal. That was sort of, was that the first sort of big exposure that you felt like you'd had in the, in the movies? Yes, yes, clearly it was. Uh I was doing a play on Broadway called Never Live Over a Pretzel Factory. And that's the actual title. And it lasted about <laughs> as long as you'd think a play with that title would last, about a week on Broadway. And uh, uh, just a few weeks later, I, I read for a part in this new play called The Subject Was Roses. And I was lucky enough to get that part. And I opened uh, in 1964. And we ran on Broadway for about a year and a half. And then I did the road tour of the play with uh, Jack Albertson. And then in 1968, we did the movie. Patricia Neal made her first appearance since her recovery. And that's a wonderful yeah. talent. Yeah. But that was a pretty big deal. Uh, the subject was roses. And uh, I was very, very fortunate. But obviously, we mentioned that was a big break for you. But then, of course, arguably the biggest break some nine years later was Apocalypse Now. Um, break break is a good word. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, yes, in many ways, actually. And not just for you, but for Emilio as well. Yeah, for all of us. Yeah, it was uh, It was a definitely a turning point. You know, I've often said that if anyone told me what I was in for by accepting Apocalypse, I would have passed. But uh, <laughs> I, I'm equally... Uh, happy that I accepted it. And, uh, you know, uh, we don't always uh, see it at the time, but uh, we have to accept the cup as offered, not altered. And that's the only way that we, we really are able to grow, I think, is when we, ex we accept the hard choices. Because yeah. I think it would be fair to say you were, in your personal life, it was a challenging time. But for listeners that don't know, you, you had a heart attack, is that right? Well, you know, oh. they said they said I did, but it was later discovered that I had not. I, I had some oh, really? uh, physical uh, ailment, but we weren't quite uh, sure that, that it was a heart attack. In fact, I, I only recently discovered that it wasn't uh, through, you know, a physical when I was getting ready oh, for heart surgery in, 19, in 2000. Uh, uh, 15, I had uh, heart surgery and they, we told them, hey, you're going to find a scar there. And they said, no, there's no scar. Whatever it was you had was not a heart attack. So it took all those years to discover that uh, there was a wrong diagnosis. So go figure, you know. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Do you still have the scar on the hand? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that was definitely a scar. You know, I had been trained uh, for the part because I didn't have any personal experience with uh, being a soldier. So I was sent this extraordinary young man named Joe Lowry, who was a uh, Vietnam veteran who'd been very severely wounded several times. 
during his time in Vietnam. And uh, they sent him to me to train me. And he did. He trained me in all the small arms uh, that I needed to know and uh, the tactics of a soldier. And he assured me that I would do fine as a soldier. I had my doubts. <laughs> and after, <laughs> after he saw me on the set, he had his as well. But um, he was trying to teach me what some of the lads were trained in hand-to-hand -hand combat. And he said karate, that, wasn't there? yeah, you, you learn karate and jujitsu and those uh, arts, close yeah. contact combat. And so he said that w when I practiced, I should do so in front of the mirror because nothing is quicker than your own reflection and you can, you can judge where the target is. And so I would do that. And the particular time that I was <laughs> doing that, uh, I was slightly inebriated, or one could say far more slightly <laughs> than inebriated. And, uh, and I struck the mirror with a very good uh, karate jab and uh, opened the <laughs> a pretty good cut in my hand, which uh, kind of shocked me, you know. But you kind of then went along with it, didn't you? And I did, yeah, yeah. because, you know, uh, Francis tried to stop it. He said, you know... Uh, and I guess everyone knows we're talking about that opening scene where I'm rousting about in a hotel room waiting for a mission, but having to deal with the inner demons. And um, I was dealing with some of my own personal inner demons who were coming to the surface. And uh, Francis tried to stop it because of my injury. And I said, no, no. I said, let me do this. Uh, I've done this in private enough. Uh, maybe it'll help to do it in public. I'm still torn whether it was a good idea, but I did it in any rate, and uh, there it is. But, you know, it was not in the original, that whole sequence uh, was not in the original premiere of the show and the Cannes Film Festival. It was only added after the festival when the film opened in the United States. And uh, when I heard that it had been cut uh, in Cannes, I was very relieved because that was not something that I I wanted to see, let alone my family or anyone I knew and loved, but they added it, and uh, I didn't know it until I went to see the film. Months after it opened, I saw it in New York. I was there doing some publicity, and I saw it with a friend, and I was stunned. Uh, it's an extraordinary film, and I could see really where is. that scene lent a lot of credibility to the individual hell of war making uh, it's a very powerful scene it is that yeah and in a lot of ways you know I, I remember once watching it years later with another friend who didn't know me back then and said wow how does that feel there was a documentary made about apocalypse it, it was called the heart of the hearts of darkness i think it was a wonderful documentary and very honest and that scene was included and we were asked to watch the documentary before it was released. It was a wonderful young director named uh, Hickenlooper who took all the footage with his partner and made that film, you know. And uh, I had to watch it in order to give my okay, as it were, you know, let them release it. And this friend said, wow, how do you feel about that? And I said, well, that's who I was. That's not who I am. So. I can't uh, change that. And it's an honest uh, portrayal and I have to let it go. And so I did. We don't always get to choose what we'll be remembered for. 
<laughs> a lot. <laughs> in fact, most of it is not by our choosing. You know, a lot of it, I've, a lot of the things that I'm remembered for, I've forgotten. <laughs> for good or ill, or for just a lack of a good memory. I don't know. But it, it felt like, uh, and from what you said in other interviews, it was something that in that moment you you had to do based on where you were. And I wondered, you know, May the 1st, 1981 was quite a important date and time for you. Do you think that those moments in that scene, for example, were almost the start of a path to that? You could You could clearly see that now, but I didn't see it as it was happening. Uh, there were still uh, a number of stations that I had to arrive and depart from before I knew that I needed to make a, a transfer. Uh, I had to get on another track. And uh, yeah, that was a big, uh, a big step uh, towards what eventually occurred in Paris on May 1st, 1981, which was my return to Catholicism. Uh, but along the way, I had uh, so many um, local stops, if you will. One of them was in India, uh, where I went to play a, a role in Gandhi uh, with uh, another one of my heroes, uh, Richard Attenborough, who directed. And Wonderful director. Uh, yes, he was. And he was a wonderful man as well. And... Uh, he was a, clearly an actor's director, but he was also dedicated to this, to getting Gandhi produced. And uh, with Ben Kingsley, of course, is one of the great performances, if not his best performance mm. uh, ever. And all of the uh, attention that he received was deserved. But Absolutely. I had a part uh, there and it got me to India and, uh, once I heard a description somebody said about their transformation that I applied to myself, a friend of mine was once asked what made him, this is uh, Father Greg Boyle, who founded Homeboy Industries here in Los Angeles, which has become a national organization for uh, rehabilitating gang members. And he was asked uh, what made him become such a uh, dedicated activist. And he said, well, frankly, I went into the third world and they cracked open my heart. And that's what happened to me in India. And it was a reflection of the Philippines and all the other third world countries that I had visited. But yeah, that, that's what happened. Uh, India cracked open my heart. And uh, the wound was, was still very fresh by the time I got to my next job in Paris in May of that year, May 1st, exactly. Uh, yeah, I made a very conscious decision to uh, return to uh, Catholicism. But I didn't come back to a religion that I had grown up in out of fear or uh, anxiety. I came back out of commitment to social justice. Yeah. You mentioned Martin Luther King, obviously in 65. Uh, and the civil rights movement, which was in, in its its highest point, arguably. But it wasn't until the 80s where you, you yourself then really start to get involved in in social activism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I've often said that Mother Teresa drove me back to Catholicism, but Daniel Berrigan got me there. Dan Berrigan <laughs> and his brother Phil were both two uh, Catholic priests who became uh, 
very powerful uh, social justice uh, advocates and activists during the Vietnam War. In fact, Dan Berrigan, in fact, both brothers uh, went to prison for activities against the war. And I remember being deeply moved and um, awakened uh, by a statement that Dan made just before he started a prison term for burning draft cards. Uh, with homemade napalm at Catonsville, Maryland. Wow. And uh, <laughs> just before he was uh, to start his prison term, he kind of, he held a gathering with friends to kind of say goodbye. And during that gathering, he said, I don't see any other way that we're going to end this war without total commitment. And it means that we're going to have to fill the jails. And someone said uh, to him, oh, well, Father Berrigan, it's all well and good for you to advocate going to jail for civil disobedience, opposing the war and such. You don't have any children. What's going to happen to our children if we go to jail? And Dan Berrigan said, what's going to happen to them if you don't? And that kind of did it. You know, it's uh, uh, the old saying, he that hath offspring giveth hostages to the future. So I had children that had a stake in the future that I wouldn't be around to see. And so I began to realize that I had to make a commitment to social justice, to nonviolent civil disobedience for peace and social justice. And yeah, I started, I was inspired by the Berrigans. My first arrest in New York was against nuclear proliferation. And, uh, Is that with the story around I stand with the preacher? Oh no, that was a, that was another uh, that was another arrest some years later here in Los Angeles at a federal uh, lockup. That took some guts to do that. That was a pretty brave thing because those officers <laughs> could have done anything in that jail cell. It's true, yeah. <laughs> Even though they were outnumbered uh, <laughs> by us inmates, <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm 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 going to have to remember the name of that. A uh, man that you mentioned as the preacher before I tell this he's, story. He stands up, doesn't he? Because his back is hurting. And then the police officer yeah, very much orders so. him yeah. to sit down. Yeah. Which and, and he refuses to sit down. Yeah. And then you stand up and uh, he says, what the hell are you doing? And, and you I say, said, I'm standing. <laughs> in a very shaky voice, I said, I'm standing with the preacher. And that was it. <laughs> and we all joined the preacher and began to sing my life goes on in endless song above earth's lamentation i hear the real though far off hymn that serves a new creation no storm can shake my inmost calm while to that rock i'm clinging for love is lord of heaven and earth how can i keep from singing Oh, bravo, bravo. <laughs> that was wonderful. Yeah. I never miss an opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a plot twist first for us. I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm chuffed. Um, before I talk about a plot twist person, just very quickly going back to Apocalypse Now, and it's me, the movie geek, being uh, too invested. But 
uh, we've mentioned about very talented individuals that you've worked with over your career, and particularly in that in that time frame. Marlon Brando. I mean, in terms of icons and screen icons, it doesn't get much bigger. Uh, what was that experience like? Because I imagine, <laughs> I imagine for anyone acting alongside him, or even for in terms of a bucket list in that time, he must be at the top of somebody that you'd want to work with. At the very top. There were two people growing up that I admired the most in our profession. One was James Dean, of course. He had a very powerful influence on me as a boy. Um, he was a cool dude. Yes, he was, yeah. And the <laughs> other is Marlon Brando. And I never thought that I would uh, ever get a chance to work with him. Uh, and uh, as luck would have it, I uh, got to join him in uh, Apocalypse Now. I had adored him as a, uh, an actor, and I, I came to admire him even more as, as a man. Uh, he, was a, he was a man after my own heart. His first day on the set, I'll never forget, and no one would forget, he went around and introduced himself to every crew and cast member. And I think there were about 250 of us. And it's true, he took the time to introduce himself and to ask their names and what they did and how happy he was there to join them. And, and if, if he could be of any service to let him know. And that's the way he was. He disarmed everybody. Me, most of all, I guess, because I got the pleasure of working with him very closely. We stayed friends until he died, really. And uh, he was very involved in the civil rights movement as well as uh, for American Native uh, Indigenous people. And uh, so he was my hero on that level to begin with. But then to work with him as an actor, I mean, to, to actually be on camera with him. <laughs> I remember <laughs> the first that. time uh, we, we had become friends. We worked on some scenes together. But the actual first shot on screen was uh, my coming into that temple in the dark with a a big hatchet and I was creeping up behind him and I raised the hatchet back and was just about to come down on the top of his bald head. And he turned to me, looked me in the eyes and said, pray for your father. <laughs> and I dropped the hatchet and I, I didn't quite know what to say. And I didn't quite believe what he had said. <laughs> <laughs> he was just using a defensive mechanism, anything to get me to stop from killing him. <laughs> Pray for your father. Uh, go figure. I, I never asked him why he said that, but uh, it, it got my attention. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm <laughs> and sure it also it ruined the take. And we had to go back <laughs> and do it again. But I've been praying for my father uh, ever since. And uh, I'm, I'm very happy that he reminded me to do that. Remarkable, remarkable. Uh, I want to come on to my second plot twist question. This is centered around uh, a person. Is there someone behind the scenes that's been an unexpected force in, in your life? Well, it would be, be my wife, Janet, of course, uh, my partner, just about all my adult life. And we were married, I was 20, uh, 21 when we were married. Uh, and uh, she was just about a year and a half older than I. I remember being uh, disarmed by her because of her 
her instinctual honesty that was the most uh, attractive uh, characteristic that I saw in her. And I saw it because I clearly did not possess it in my own character. It took me <laughs> quite a while to uh, <laughs> trust that and to want to be that honest. You know, I, I mentioned Dan Berrigan earlier. Uh, there was a young couple that came to him and asked uh, if he would marry them. And he said, of course, I assume you love each other. Oh, yes. And you're committed. And he said, yes. He said, would you promise to help each other become yourselves? And uh, that's what I think marriage is all about. Where the Western image of marriage, I think, is 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 misconstrued in that we've been taught to believe that uh, we can make each other happy. Uh, oh, I love you, and I can make you happy, or he loves me, or she loves me, and that that's going to make me. And that isn't what that's a terrible burden to put on someone. I can't make you happy and you can't make me happy. We can choose to help each other become ourselves and we can make ourselves happy. We have to choose our own happiness. We can't depend on someone to make us happy. If you're not happy, no one's going to change that, but you. Uh, so it means a life change. And it took me quite a while to come to that realization with Janet. And when I finally did, it was the most important decision I ever made. And it was in tandem with my return to the church, basically. I knew that I could not live a dishonest uh, life, uh, a dishonest moment, frankly, from then on, because uh, I would be only hurting myself. Mm. So yeah, so I came to that. And she was the, uh, yeah, the one person that uh, put up with me for those first 20 years. Uh, <laughs> And then uh, <laughs> had the advantage of advising me for the next 40, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. We'll be married uh, 60, 60 years come December, December 23rd, 1961 yeah. at St. Stephen's Church on East 28th Street between Lexington and Third Avenue in New York City. At eight o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Congratulations. Oh, well, it's her fault. <laughs> um, we've spoken about some very powerful, influential figures in the 20th century. Martin Luther King, Frank Sinatra. Can we talk about J. Edgar Hoover? Because obviously you play him. <laughs> the wretched J. Edgar Hoover. Now, I right mean, a, a very powerful figure in his own right, perhaps less sexy than Sinatra and uh, Reverend King. But what was it like playing him in Judas and the Black Messiah? Because a fantastic film. It is, it is a wonderful film. I had a very small part, but an important character to uh, present in uh, G. Edgar Hoover. Uh, I was aware, even when the, this fascist was still among the living, <laughs> God loving, uh, of what he was up to. So there was no love lost between us, but there was a great opportunity to show that a government official so high up in the government that he had created his own agency, basically, and ran it his own way for decades and destroyed the lives, literally, of many, many thousands of people. And finally, I was given an opportunity to expose his level of malevolence in that film. 
so yeah, it was responsibility, I should say, when I was asked to do it, because it, I knew before I even read the script, many of the horrible crimes this man had committed in his official position as director, founder, basically, of the FBI. Mm. It's interesting, because I suppose, prior to your answer there, I was, I suppose everything that he is and he stood for is against everything you know, you've, you've stood for in, in your life. So almost why take on that role? But I suppose it's to present, you know, the, the truth. Oh, yeah. You know, I think as actors, we are given a license, as it were, to explore uh, characters that we'd have to say they are outside of our lives, really, but that we, oh, we're not given a pass. In fact, it's incumbent upon artists very often to expose evil and uh, risk exposing our own dishonesty and malevolence uh, in doing so. In other words, all of us have within us an equal measure of possible good and evil. And uh, we have to show the dark side of ourselves in order to have an honest portrayal. In other words, if I'm playing Hitler, for example, I can't stand outside the character and say, oh, well, no, this is me, Martin. I have nothing to do with this little mustached fool. Uh, don't pay any attention to, to, to me here in this thing. You know, I'm only playing this guy, and you all know what a, what a horrible uh, figure he was. No, we, we don't get that opportunity. We have to carry with us a measure of our own darkness and expose that in order to have credibility when we are playing one of these characters. Yeah. I suppose almost that teaches us the most valuable lessons, doesn't it? I suppose. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What sort of roles you've had? Some iconic roles. Thinking of West Wing, of course, we've mentioned Apocalypse Now, Badlands. What role have you enjoyed most? Where you've been on set and you've thoroughly enjoyed the whole. There is never a film or a show, either on stage or television, that I have enjoyed more or been more proud of than. The Way, which is a film, film I did with my son, Emilio, who wrote it and directed it and played my son in this film that we did in Spain in 2010. It's the story of a father who loses his son on the Camino, the pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela. And, the Way of St. David. No, The Way of St. James. St. James. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's the, one of the oldest pilgrimages in the world, second only to Jerusalem, I think. It's uh, over a thousand years old. It goes across northern Spain from the Pyrenees in France. It normally starts in Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port in the Pyrenees, and you walk over the Pyrenees into Spain, through Pamplona and um, Leon, all the way to Galicia in northern Spain, to Santiago de Compostela. So... That film was a deeply personal experience, a gratifying mm. one, and a family one. And we dedicated the film to my father, Francisco Estevez, who was from Galicia. So it, it still remains today. If I had one more to do, I'd like to do part two of The Way. So if anyone's listening... <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a brilliant film. I really like the interaction with... Uh... James Nesbitt's character. I loved him. He's asked, 
He is a, he's a fantastic actor. He is you, wonderful. I think, yes. I, I think he asked you, what was your son like? And you're like, like you, very knowledgeable, but a pain in my ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jimmy was just wonderful. And, he, and his character arrived just at a time when we needed lifting up. And his energy was a great picker-upper. Mm-hmm. I mentioned uh, West Wing. Obviously, uh, I had a, a guest on last week, actually, as a TV and film critic, and he was talking about certain series like The Sopranos that kind of did, you know, the way that TV is now with series, it did change television in a way. Mm-hmm. And I, I put West Wing in the same sort of category. Um, that must have been a, a fantastic process to be a part of. But yeah. I wanted to ask about President Clinton when he was on set. <laughs> yes, well, uh, I had met him before he, he came to visit us, because when he came to visit us, he was uh, uh, already out of office. He had come to do an appearance benefiting the 9-11 uh, victims. And so he, he chose to, to do it on the West Wing set. And we were very happy to have him. He was one of my heroes, actually. I think the character of Jeb Bartlett was based on three American presidents. It would have been John Kennedy, Jimmy Carter, and Bill Clinton. And uh, no uh, surprise, they were all Democrats, but uh, uh, <laughs> uh, they were my heroes in the political world. And uh, yeah, he was uh, he was a great supporter. He loved the series. And uh, sometimes he would offer suggestions for different episodes. It was a very gratifying time. Of course, when we started, there was no guarantee that a show about a politics uh, would be uh, a welcome <laughs> a, a welcome entity on a network that had to sell products, you know, uh, for corporate America. Uh, I don't think anyone dreamed that we would uh, last longer than a year. And so, but it was very gratifying. Seven years, though. It, it went seven seasons, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it gained uh, kind of a very interesting position because we were only on the air for a season when the Democrats uh, lost the uh, White House and uh, we had to deal with a Republican administration, a conservative Republican administration. Mm-hmm. And so we became like a different universe uh, in some circles, a, desire, a more desirable one <laughs> <laughs> on the West Wing. And a lot of people were encouraged by what we did and continued to do. We served as a loyal opposition, but also an inspiring one. We celebrated uh, the art of uh, political compromise, the ideal spirit of uh, public service, which was to the, the whole common good and not a, a, a selfish partisan uh, one. So yeah, it was very, very gratifying. I had a lot of fun doing it and um, it, it still resonates, you know, it's still being seen a lot really of course, does, a lot of yeah. young people are still a, are just now becoming familiar with it. I get letters uh, uh, all the time uh, of saying how inspiring it is. A lot of young people went into government or public service. Oh, wow. You know, uh, social justice activism because of the series. And particularly young women were inspired. And and clearly the character of CJ was brilliantly played by Alison Janney. had a lot to do with that. I'm sure many uh, 
especially over the last few years, would have quite fancied President Barber being in office. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, we've had a lot of uh, comment about that. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. You you mentioned uh, at the beginning we talked about Jane Fonda, something that both you you and and Marlon Brando have in common is around social activism. Mm -hmm. Um, I always love your response because you must get asked all the time, you know, what impact has that had on your career? And has that been of... uh, maybe of detriment to your career. I mean, Jane Fonda's command said almost at times that she felt like she was blacklisted. Yeah, she was. I always yeah. love your, but I always love your response when you're asked that and you go, well, I hope so. Because... Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah, because then you know you're doing something right. It, Jane, Jane is my hero. I adore her. I'm so happy to be working with her now at this age, at this time in our lives and our careers. Uh, the last time I was arrested was with her in Washington, uh, year before last, just before the pandemic, uh, for uh, Fire Drill Friday on the environment. And Jane is just the most extraordinary person in our business, frankly. I mean, to have had this career this long and equally as important as an activist on all of these issues, these critical issues, particularly now with the environment. She's right out front and uh, she's a great source of inspiration. And uh, she's my hero. And I, I had to tell her that recently. Uh, you know, when she started opposing the, the war in Vietnam, I mean, my God, I mean, it was extraordinary that this was not just an American, not just a woman, but a very, very popular, top-rated Hollywood star from a you know, a uh, level of a class of royalty in the acting mm. business. And Daughter of Henry. Yeah, yeah. And there she and there she was, risking everything with family, friends, nation. But she owned her soul. And you know, you you cannot put a price on what she did. She risked her life. And one of the reasons I've always been aware of is why our profession was so angry at her for her objection to the war and the way she did it with her visit to Hanoi. And the reason is because she exposed our cowardice, the male cowardice, that this was a woman who risked her life to expose the brutality, the brutality of our war on Asian people. And she made us look out clearly as the sissies that we were. And I use that word uh, in the vernacular. We were cowards. And she made it clear. And that was why they were so opposed to what she did. It wasn't what she did. It was because of who she was doing what she did. And we were doing nothing but sitting on our ass. And so for that, uh, she has earned my lifelong respect. And I adore her. And she will always, always be my hero. So my hero is is Muhammad Ali. I've mentioned him a couple of times. Yeah. It feels like both of them, but particularly where you talk about Jane there, it is, that's the definition of courage, isn't it? Very that's, much so, yeah. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Yeah, um, they, they, they earned the phrase, both of those figures. 
one heart with courage is a majority. Mm-hmm. I like that. Mm-hmm. I've never asked this on the podcast, but you'll probably understand why I'm asking it based on your own social activism. How many times now have you been arrested? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, Jane asked me that because she was writing a book on uh, her uh, her activities with uh, Fire Drill Fridays on the environment. And I was trying to reckon, uh, and I talked to my lawyer, and uh, together we reckoned that it was about 68. But I wow. couldn't confirm that. Uh, it, it probably uh, would land somewhere around uh, then. Uh, uh, they were all over a period of years and uh, a number of different... Uh, circumstances. In fact, one, uh, you mentioned the preacher. I didn't... I stand with the preacher. I didn't uh, mention who that man was. It was the Reverend James Lawson. James Lawson was a colleague of Martin Luther King Jr. And Reverend King sent Jim Lawson to Memphis to begin to organize nonviolent uh, organization against uh, uh, Jim Crow. And it was Jim Lawson that asked Reverend King to come to Memphis. And that's, of course, when uh, Reverend King was assassinated during the prolonged garbage men strike in night on April the 4th, 1968. At any rate, years later, uh, during the uh, Wednesday morning coalition against the war in El Salvador, I was arrested with a bunch of activists um, and we were confined uh, in the the basement of jail cells uh, for the federal building downtown here in Los Angeles. And it was where they held uh, undocumented immigrants. And so we were all in there and there was maybe as many as 150 of us, I guess. And and Jim Lawson was among us, but I didn't know him. a dear friend of mine, another uh, a Catholic priest, uh, uh, John Deere, he and I were handcuffed and leaning against the wall on the floor. And he said, oh, my God, look over there. That's Reverend Jim Lawson. I said, really? He said, yes, I, I think it's him. And we just looked and realized, oh, my God, it is him. And after a while, Reverend Lawson shimmied up the wall. And we was trying to, stra- our, our hands were uh, handcuffed behind our backs. And so it was very difficult to get comfortable. And he shimmied up the wall and he was leaning there. And one of the guards came in and said, you get back down on the floor. And he said, I'm very sorry, sir, but my back is very, very painful. And my arms are going numb and I, I have to stand up. The guy says, you get down right now or I'm going to kick your ass, mister. And he said, with all due respects, I must stand. Otherwise, I'm going to become incapacitated. And the guy left and he said, "Uh, you better change your mind quickly, mister. I'll be right back. And he went to get reinforcements. And he came back in a few minutes with some more guards. And he again ordered Reverend Lawson to get down on the floor. And Reverend Lawson again said, with all due respect, I cannot. And I pushed my way up the wall. And I said the bravest thing I've ever said. (laughs) I'm standing with the preacher. And they yelled at me. (laughs) 
And everybody, one by one, around that huge room, began to shimmy up the wall and say, I'm standing with the preacher. And we began to sing, How Can I Keep From Singing? And that <laughs> was the bravest thing I ever did. And it still scared the hell out of me. <laughs> well, I was going to say, it must have been absolutely terrifying. It was also, terrifying. It was absolutely But also terrifying. liberating. It was, yeah. I saw him recently get a friend's uh, funeral. He was as bright and inspiring as ever. And I went over and, and this time, I got the blessing. <laughs> <laughs> Martin, we've reminisced on, on the past. I just wanted to ask one last question on the future. Um, what, and I'm deliberately leaving it open-ended. What, what are your hopes and aspirations? Uh, for all of us, I, I hope I <laughs> live long enough to see the end of this pandemic and a return to some sense of justice in our politics here in the United States and some end to the acceptable violence that seems to permeate most of the world uh, these days. I'm happy that I have, and I'm grateful I've lived as long as I've lived and, and had as many moments of clarity. And, and uh, I hope I, I see a whole lot more days and a whole lot more change in the world towards a better future for our young people and uh, a clearing of our minds so that we can clear the air in the environment and that we can see and hear each other and our real needs and that we will disarm each other with our love and compassion and our humor. And uh, could I end, as, as this ending now? Well, I, is this over? It's, 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 I well, wanna, it's I almost end, there. Can I end with Tagore's prayer? Please do. Please we do. are called to lift up the world and all its people to that place where the heart is without fear and the head is held high, where knowledge is free, where the world has not been broken up into fragments by narrow domestic walls, where words come out from the depths of truth and tireless striving stretches its arms towards perfection, where the clear stream of reason has not lost its way into the dreary desert sands of dead habit, where the mind is led forward by thee into ever-widening thought and action into that heaven of freedom Dear Father, let our world awake. Amen. Amen. Martin Sheen, you mentioned just before there, love and opportunity. I, I love that I've had the chance to speak to you, have the opportunity to indulge in those stories. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. And I look forward to seeing you again and maybe even meeting you sometime when we're able to travel to Absolutely. each other's countries. <laughs> I look forward to seeing the sequel to The Way. <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? All right. Oh, it'd be wonderful. Thanks so much.
Wow. It's amazing to be saying this, but that was Martin Sheen on Plot Twist and a huge thank you to him. What an interview. We said before, didn't we, Fran, there would be some pretty incredible stories. Obviously, a career that has gone from Brando to Jane Fonda and Grace and Frankie, extraordinary. And each story particularly at the beginning, especially when he mentioned Martin Luther King, you, could, you almost had your mouth open at just like, yeah. you know, just how incredible it was and actually just took you into those sort of those eras and those times. And it, what an extraordinary life. Like you say, it was just such a consuming listen and some of them almost unbelievable stories at points. It was really fascinating. And I didn't know he'd been arrested 68 times. <laughs> it was a record. I, I didn't know beforehand because obviously he's known for his social activism, and I wasn't sure whether you know. Do I ask outright how many times you've been arrested? Is that something? <laughs> what a that question! You, what a question! Can you ask that? But I love it that you know when he says, "Has that affected your career?" and his 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 stance is, "Well, I hope so," because ultimately it means I'm doing something right, mm. um, which is testament to to who he is. And he must keep his lawyer busy, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I think what just came across so strongly in that interview though was that he is such a kind man yes when he mentioned about may the 1st 1981 and reconverting to being a catholic again and, and, and the commitment to it i think you can see from there in his life that that commitment and everything that he stood for is you can see it in everything that he says every response every story and i knew he'd be humble beforehand but he just reconfirmed that 100 times over. Yeah, and we knew that it was going to be an interview that had very interesting stories, but also, like, what powerful stories. Like, what he's out there standing for, like... And some plot twists first. We had a plot twist first. We had uh, the prayer at the end, of course, which was lovely, but... And and the singing, just bursting into song about when they were in jail and that experience of all standing together and that... Just, yeah, remarkable. Loved it. And I thought, Fran, you'd probably like the the romantic side to it as well. Oh, the the inner romantic was just swooning (laughs) about the fact that him and his wife have been together for 60 years. December the 23rd, 2021, 60 years. Congratulations to them. Incredible. And you obviously covered loads of ground with some of his most iconic roles, Apocalypse Now, West Wing. And there is, of course, Judas and the Black Messiah, which is available to watch on now from the 1st of October. Yes, really looking forward to watching that again. And of course, Fran, one for us to celebrate, Daniel Kaluuya, fellow Brit, Academy Award winner with this film. Yeah, it really is an outstanding watch. So look, thanks again to Martin Sheen. That was, we said, an epic interview in the start. And it really, really delivered on that. And if like me, it's also inspired you to go back and watch some of the epic greats that Martin Sheen has been in, then I would definitely (laughs) implore you to do so. Well, I'm going to start West Wing now. And on that note, happy watching. We'll see you soon. Farewell. (laughs) 